Good morning to all of you this morning. Uh, good to see you here this morning. Uh, we are going to be in the book of Judges today, for the most part. So if you have a Bible with you, uh, turn to the book of Judges. We're going to uh, cover a large amount of scripture today, kind of do a flyover today, kind of a cursory view of a, a great story, the story of Samson. Um, but I want to preface this message this morning by answering, asking you a question to answer in your own mind. Um, have you ever uh, found yourself thinking, man, what a waste. What a waste. Something about something caused you to say that. Maybe it's government waste or waste of food or a waste of time, but I think all of us are offended by something that is unnecessarily wasted. I'll just bless you with a few of these uh, this morning. I know that you'll appreciate government waste as I share some of these things with you. Um, this is your tax dollars at work, by the way, okay? $1.5 million spent studying fish on treadmills. I don't know if you heard about this one. The University of California, San Diego, spent $1.5 million uh, of your tax money to measure the endurance of bluegill fish on a treadmill. Don't ask me why they did that, doesn't say, but that's your tax money at work. $3 million <laughs> was spent studying the theme from the movie Jaws and how it affected people's perception of sharks. Three million. Now, I'm already afraid of sharks. I don't need people to spend $3 million to find out whether I'm afraid of sharks or not. And then my favorite, $3.4 million were spent on hamster cage matches. Okay, so they got these juvenile hamsters, put them in cages and faced them off, you know, like the MMA on TV. $3.4 million to see how these juvenile cage uh, uh, hamsters uh, fought it out in cages. $3.4 million. And there are a lot of them like that, as you probably well know. These are, there are dozens like that. You think, oh my goodness. Another uh, statistic about waste is waste for food. I, I did not know this was the case, but while the world wastes about 1.4 ton, billion tons of food every year, the United States holds the unique distinction of discarding more food than any other country in the world. Nearly 40 million tons or 80 billion pounds every year. And 30 to 40 percent uh, uh, that's estimated to be 30 to 40% of the entire U.S. food supply. And the single largest uh, thing that goes into our landfills is uneaten food. I mean, what a waste. You know, you find yourself thinking, all that food that we throw away, not just personally, but restaurants and grocery stores and stuff. Here's the last one here. This is a Gallup annual work and education poll asked American workers directly to estimate the number of hours that they waste each workday as well as the number of hours their typical coworker wastes each day. I don't know how they expected people to be honest about this one, but anyway. On average, employees report they personally waste about one hour a day while they believe their coworkers waste uh, slightly more time, about an hour and a half each day. Yeah, of course the coworkers waste more time than they do, but... Webster's Ninth New Collegiate Dictionary defines waste as follows. To spend or use carelessly, or to squander, or to be used ineffectively or unprofitably. Now, another type of waste that I didn't mention so far is that, and it happens far too frequently and it hurts to see it, is the waste of a person's life. And I think we've all seen people who have the potential to do great things and give it all, and, and, and they give it all away or lose it for something stupid. Now I'm going to get really specific, and this is where we go into our message today. Um, maybe the greatest waste of all, really, when you think about it, can happen, that can happen is wasting the life of faith that God has given us as Christians. There are reservoirs of our lives as Christians that can be wasted and we don't live up to our potential as believers, okay? Because the gift that we've been given in Christ is a treasure, and we're to be stewards of that treasure. What does uh, Paul say? We have this treasure in earthen vessels 
the treasure of Christ living within us. And it can be wasted in ways that, that really uh, deplete our maximum potential in our Christian lives. That's the raw truth. That's just the honest truth. We can do that, okay? And uh, in doing that, we don't get the blessings and uh, promises that God gives us in Scripture that will come to us if we don't waste that opportunity as believers here on earth. Um, now, this is where we get into Judges chapter 13 through 16. There's probably not a person in the entire Bible that wasted their potential as a believer more than Samson. Samson is the epitome of someone who wasted so much of what God had given him. Now, he did end well. I mean, after all, he was inducted into God's Hall of Faith, Faith's Hall of Fame, as we read in uh, Hebrews chapter 11. And what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Samson, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign enemies, armies rather. We see that, that he, he ended well, but in the middle, between the beginning and the end, he wasted so much spiritual potential. It's just sad. It's really sad, okay? And so what we're gonna do this morning, we're gonna look at the ways that he wasted his potential as a believer, because he was a believer. You don't induct non-believers into Faith Hall of Fame, okay? So he was a believer, but he wasted a lot of that potential. And then we're gonna see how, by the grace of God, he pulled himself out of that waste and ended well. And, and we'll discover why he was inducted into Faith Hall of Fame. And that's an, I was talking to somebody before the service. They were saying, what are you gonna do with this passage this week, Mitch? And uh, I said, well, just remember that it ends well. And so I want to let you know, this ends well. It's not a depressing ending. Well, it kind of is, but it's, he ends well by doing God's will. So we're going to look at that. Now, again, this is a cursory view of chapters 13 through 16. I don't think there's ever been a time that I've preached in all these years, decades, that I've covered so much scripture in one Sunday morning. So if it, it looks like I'm going into fast forward, there's a reason for that, Okay. But we're going to be looking at chapters 13 through 16 today. And the title of the message today is How to Waste a Life of Faith. How to Waste a Life of Faith. We can learn a lot from these Old Testament characters as we go through Hebrews 11, Faith's Hall of Fame, and see what God wants to tell us through them. So we're going to look at three ways that Samson wasted a life of faith. And we can be guilty of any of these three or more than one at a time or different ones. But we gotta be careful not to waste what God's given us because life is fast and uh, we can uh, not make the most of our opportunities. So, first of all, how did Samson waste a life of faith? First of all, Samson made the decision, everybody hear me now, to separate himself from his spiritual roots. To separate himself from his spiritual roots. Now, Samson's parents were very godly people. Manoah and his wife were godly, prayerful uh, people. But she was, it says she was barren. She could not bear children. And they always blame the woman for that in the Bible, you know. But who knows? It could have been Manoah's, could have played a part in it. Who knows? But anyway, they couldn't have kids. And an angel of the Lord appears to them. And in my study, I believe it was Christ in his pre-incarnate state. We call it a Christophany. It happened many times in the Old Testament. I believe it was Jesus. And he appears to them and tells them that they're going to have a child. And it's going to be a son. And they're going to raise him as a Nazarite, which was um, a great honor. Okay, let's, let me describe to you the Nazarite in verses 4 and 5 of chapter 13. The angel says, Now see to it that you drink no wine or other fermented drink, that you do not eat anything unclean, because you will conceive and give birth to a son. No razor may be used on his head, because the boy is to be a Nazarite set apart to God from birth, and he will begin the deliverance of Israel from the hands of the Philistines. So they're told he's going to be a Nazarite, okay? And Manoah is kind of like, wow, how am I going to raise this kid? And so at the prospect of raising this child, this unusual child that they're going to have, he asks the angel of the Lord, how do I do this? How do I, how do I raise this child? And then the angel of the Lord tells him what we just read. Make sure he obeys all the rules of what a Nazarite is. 
and I'll mention those here in a few minutes again. But curious curiosity gets the best of uh, Manoah, and he's, he says, well, who are you? What's your name? And it's interesting, uh, the angel of the Lord here, who I believe is, is Christ, describes his name as so wonderful that it was beyond human ability or understanding to grasp. And I thought, wow, what does that mean? And then I thought about Isaiah 9, 6 that we used during Christmas. His name shall be called what? Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Jesus is so wonderful that um, Manoah and his wife really couldn't grasp it. And so the angel of the Lord, Jesus, doesn't tell them his name. But he, Manoah implores the angel of the Lord to stay, and he offers a sacrifice to the Lord in verse 19, and the Lord ascends in the flame of the sacrifice of the altar up to heaven, and at that moment they recognize this angel of the Lord is God. And although they're terrified, they treasure it as a blessing uh, by the Lord, and uh, Manoah, Mrs. Manoah then gives birth to Samson who grew and was blessed by the Lord and, stir, and, then, and Samson is stirred by the spirit of the Lord. Look at verse 24 of 13. The woman gave birth to a boy and named him Samson. He grew and the Lord blessed him and the spirit of the Lord began to stir him while he was in Mahana Dan between Zorah and Eshtoal. Okay, now here comes the bad part. In spite of these great spiritual privileges, Samson tragically separates himself from his spiritual roots. You couldn't have had better spiritual roots. A praying parents, a godly atmosphere, uh, all the things that the ideal childhood uh, would include. But what does Samson do? He separates himself from that of his own free will, okay, and uh, he becomes a very demanding, insensitive, and disrespectful child to his parents and to their faith, and he wouldn't listen to them. Now, I say this uh, tenderly, that could describe many children that come out of a good home, couldn't it? I mean, parents do their very, very best to raise that child in the Lord, and for some reason or another, uh, uh, that child does not honor the roots that they have received from their parents. That's not how they raise him. And it's two, we were told, shown two ways that he strays from these spiritual roots. Okay, and it's all about violating uh, the, his Nazarite vow. He violates the Nazarite vow that the angel of the Lord gave his parents to have him follow. Okay, that includes no foreign wives, no alcohol, no touching of dead bodies, and no cutting his hair. Okay? Now, there is two ways that he violates his Nazarite vows that show that he's straying now, he's drifting away, he's turning away from the roots as of, of, the, of his home, spiritual home, godly home. First of all, he is betrothed to a foreign woman. Look at verses 1 through four, okay, chapter 14. Samson went down to Timnah and saw there a young Philistine woman. When he returned, he said to his father and mother, I have seen a Philistine woman in Timnah, now get her for me as my wife. I don't like that, the way he says that. His father and mother replied, isn't there an acceptable woman among your relatives or among all our people? Must you go to the uncircumcised Philistines to get a wife? But Samson said to his father, get her for me. She's the one, right one for me. Oh boy, after decades of pastoring, I've heard that so many times. I want her, I'm gonna marry her, or I'm gonna marry him, and that's the way it's gonna be. And uh, I'm not going to go into the gory details of sometimes what happens, but I just, that just resonates with me as I hear that. So uh, get her for me. She's the right one for me. <clears throat> His parents did not know that this was from the Lord, who was seeking an occasion to confront the Philistines, for at that time they were ruling over Israel. Okay, so we have that happening uh, here, as he he's betrothed to a foreign, foreign woman, he's violating his Nazarite vows, he's moving away from his spiritual Roots. He's not following his wise parents' advice, okay? And even though God had a, sovereign, had a sovereign plan in the whole thing, it still grieved his parents. 
Okay, it still grieved his parents. I do want to say this, though. I've seen miracles happen with unequally yoked marriages where either the wife or the husband comes to faith in Christ. But why tempt fate, right? I mean, I don't believe in fate, but you know what I mean by that, by that phrase. Why do it in the first place? But anyway, they were very sad about that. Now, the second way that Samson separates himself from his spiritual roots by violating his Nazarite vow is he, he touches a dead carcass and he shows no pangs in his conscience for doing this. In verses 5 through 20, Samson goes to Timnah with his parents. And while he's going there, and they must, maybe he's way far ahead or way far behind him, I don't know, but he was attacked by a lion at the height of its strength and ferocity. In verse 5, it says a young lion, and that meant that lion was as buff as it was ever going to get. Okay? And by the way, if you want to see some, don't bring your little children in when you do this. Go to YouTube and type in Lion Attacks Its Prey. And you will be shocked at how powerful lions are. How they can take down a buffalo or a, a giraffe or an elephant or a wildebeest or a zebra. How they can just, it's just pretty interesting to watch how powerful they are. And he takes this lion and he tears it to shreds like a little doll. Okay, we're told in, with his bare hands in verse 6. But later on, he goes back to Timnah in verse 8, and he sees that the carcass of this lion that he kills has honey in the middle of it. And so he scoops out the honey, maybe he's hungry, and he scoops some of it out as he eats, as, he, as he's going along the way, and he eats this honey, having to touch the carcass as he does it, violating his vows, straying from his spiritual roots, and to, to add insult to injury, we're told in verses 7 through 10 that he gives some of the honey to his parents without telling them where he got it. You talk about, he's gotten callous to his spiritual roots. And what I, I just, the thought hit me as I uh, studied this this week that it seems like this Nazarite vow was more the parents' vow than Samson's. And sometimes, isn't that the way in Christian homes? The parents' vow doesn't get passed on to the child. Now, the ending is good, so don't get too despairing, but we see that here. Anyway, so at the bridegroom feast, Samson uses a riddle about the honey that he found. He wants to take advantage of the Philistines, and he says, I'll bet you 30 linen garments and 30 uh, sets of clothes that you can't figure out the riddle I'm going to tell you. Okay, and they were not able to figure it out. For three days, they couldn't figure it out. Verse 14 says this in chapter 14. He replied, and this is the riddle, out of the eater, and we know that's the lion, something to eat, the honey. Out of the strong, the lion, something sweet. For three days, they could not give the answer. And so they realized that they're going to have to give up 30 uh, linen garments and 30 sets of clothes if they don't guess this. So they tell Samson's wife to keep trying or they're going to burn her and her father's household alive until they die which would motivate Samson's wife, right? Just a little bit of motivation there. And so um, uh, after a week of her crying and nagging and whining, she finally breaks Samson down and he tells her, and she tells her people the answer to the riddle, and they turn to tell Samson the answer to the riddle in verses 16 and 17. And then Samson says, great, after he finds out that uh, they got the information from his wife, this is what he says, um, Samson says, if you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have solved my riddle. Boy, he was a romantic guy, wasn't he? I mean, there's nothing that a wife wants to be called more than her husband's heifer, you know. And so Samson says, if you hadn't plowed with my heifer, you wouldn't have got the answer to the riddle, but that's the way it went down. And then the spirit comes on Samson and he kills 30 Philistines, strips them of their clothes and belongings, gives them to the people who explain the riddle. And furious, he leaves town and goes back to his father's house. And his wife is given to his best man. In verse 20. Now think about the waste of time that he went through and energy by not fulfilling his Nazarite vows, straying from his spiritual roots, uh, when he really didn't have to. And how many of our testimonies could say the same thing, right? 
we were raised or you were raised or someone was raised in a, in a godly home, but they decide to stray away from their spiritual roots. And in all that waste of time and heartache and frustration and burnout, they waste so much. And then when they come back to the Lord, they look back and regret and say, man, did I ever waste a lot of time straying from my spiritual roots. Now, it doesn't mean God can't use that, but here in Samson's case, that was the first reason why he, he was uh, wasted a life of faith. He strayed from his spiritual roots. Let's go to the second one. The second way, and we're gonna look at three today, second way that Samson wasted a life of faith is that not only did he separate himself from his spiritual roots, but Samson let his revenge, a spirit of revenge, rule his life. A spirit of revenge rule his life, and we find this in chapter 15. And I would, you can spread this out just a little bit. Whether it's a spirit of bitterness or resentment or unforgiveness or of revenge, my goodness, my brothers and sisters, this is one of the classic ways to waste time as a Christian. And I know Christians for years and years and years have stunted their own growth because they remain angry and bitter and resentful and unforgiving towards someone that hurt them. And yes, they hurt them. Yes, they got hurt. And it was unjust. But rather than doing what they needed to do to resolve that, they hung on to that and like a lollipop, they sucked it and licked it and chewed on it and bit it and fed off of it uh, instead of freeing themselves from it and wasted years and years of their life. Because what you gotta understand is uh, if, if we as Christians don't resolve bitterness and the spirit of revenge and unforgiveness and, and anger, unjustified anger, um, we can't grow. Now, we can look like we can grow, we can go to Bible studies, we can teach Sunday school or preach or be on a board or whatever, but we can't grow if we're harboring unresolved bitterness or unforgiveness or a vengeful spirit. And that's what Samson did, okay? And by the way, never turn your back on this truth because it can happen at any point in our lives. You say, well, that's a long ago and I dealt with that. Listen, there's always tomorrow. Because people don't always treat us well, do they? They don't always treat us justly. There are times when we get hurt, and it stings, and we have to make a choice at that moment. This can be all the way up to when we go to be with the Lord. And if you look at the raw emotions of revenge here in chapter 15, you realize Samson wasted a whole bunch of constructive time here uh, that you could have served the Lord. But anyway, after a while, Samson goes back to visit his wife. We see in verse one of chapter 15, if you look there, later on at that time, of, at the time of wheat harvest, Samson took a young goat and went to visit his wife. And he said, I am going to my wife's room, but her father would not let him go in. Now, Samson is a romantic guy. I mean, not chocolate, you know, not flowers, not a, not a, not a uh, dinner out but a nice, smelly, hairy, dirty goat. Now guys, those of you that are married here or have girlfriends or something like that, I just want you to take note, because Valentine's Day is coming up, okay? And um, I think you, you just get a card and write it out to my wife, the heifer, enjoy the goat, love, and sign your name. I think she'll really be blessed, okay, maybe not, I don't know. Anyway, I thought it was kind of funny. But he goes to his father-in-law and says, I want to I be with my wife. And he says, not so fast. I thought you hated her, so I gave her to your best friend. Now Samson is furious. And instead of resolving his emotions of anger and unforgiveness and revenge and bitterness, he tells himself how entitled he is to take revenge and even imagines how much harm he's gonna, he's gonna cause them. Now, the thing of it is, is they're doing him a favor. 
to get Timnah to marry a fellow Philistine, takes it out of Samson's hands, and he's no longer straying from the Lord and wasting his time with this pagan wife. But he doesn't see that. His eyes are so full of anger and revenge, he just wants to get even. If you look at verse three here in chapter 15, Samson said to them, this time, I have a right to get even with the Philistines. I will really harm them. And then you go up to verse 7. Samson said, since you're acted like this, I won't stop until I get my revenge on you. And in verse 11, he says, I merely did to them what they did to me. This is a guy that is totally bound up and captured by uh, unforgiveness, anger, and bitterness, and resentment. And he wants to get even. And nowhere here do we see in, this, in these, this instant God giving him permission to do that. Nowhere. Nowhere. Okay. Nowhere do we see God giving him permission. And nowhere does God give us permission to harbor bitterness, unforgiveness, anger, or a spirit of revenge. Nowhere. Okay? In fact, it's just the opposite. And why does God want us to forgive those who have hurt us? Because he knows that unchecked bitterness and revenge and unforgiveness can affect us and poison those around us. I'm going to show you how that works here in a second. But I want to give you some instruction about that up in Ephesians chapter 4 real quickly. In Ephesians 4, um, 26 and 27... And 29 through 32, Ephesians 4, 26 and 27, and 29 through 32 says this. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with his own hands that he might have something to share with those in need. And here it comes. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only for what is helpful for building others up according to their needs that may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. And how do we do that? We need to get rid of bitterness, all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ, God forgave you. We can sponsor the devil in our lives and we can grieve the spirit in our lives by not forgiving those who have harmed us. And I know this is a tough pill to swallow because some of you have been hurt really, really bad by some other people. And so have I. I'm, not, I'm speaking out of experience here. But let's look at the awful results of anger and bitterness and revenge and unforgiveness that remains unresolved. In verses 4 to 19 of chapter 15, I'm going to go fast here. Most of you know this story fairly well. But there's the unnecessary destruction of animals and property. Samuel gets 300 foxes, ties their tails together, sets them on fire, and sets them loose through the Philistines' uh, uh, crops, through their grain and their fields and their olive groves, and burns them all up. And I'll tell you, unforgiveness and unresolved anger burns things up. And then you have revenge coming back on him in verse 6, okay? In verse 6. I'm not going to read all of these, but, um, well, let's, I'll just read this in verse 6. So the Philistines went up and burned her and her father to death. Okay, you're going to burn our crops, we're going to burn your people. So now you start a cycle when there's a lack of forgiveness. And then the unnecessary necessary cycle of violence. Samson gets back at them. They come back at Samson. Samson comes back at them. They come back at Samson. And here's the one that really got me. In verses 8 through 11, the unnecessary harm that bitterness and revenge and unforgiveness does to, to those who are closest to us. Look at verses 8 through 11. He attacked them viciously and slaughtered many of them, the Philistines, and he went down and stayed in a cave in the rock of Etam. The Philistines went up and camped in Judah, spreading out near Lehi. The men of Judah asked, why have you come to fight us? We have come to take Samson prisoner, they answered, to do to him as he did to us. There's that cycle. Then 3,000 men from Judah went down to the cave. This, these are um, uh, um, Philistines. 
in the rock of Etam, it said, I'm sorry, they are, they are the Jews, the Israelites. 3,000 men from Judah went down to the cave in the rock of Etam and said to Samson, don't you realize that the Philistines are rulers over us? What have you done to us? These are his people. And then he comes back. He, he didn't say, oh, you know, I, yeah, I, I blew it. Oh, I'm so sorry. It says, I merely did to them what they did to me. Illustrating the fact of what? First of all, Samson's not teachable. He's blinded by his spirit of revenge. But it made trouble for the people he was closest to. Our revenge, bitterness, and resentment, and spirit of unforgiveness affects those closest to us. I'm sorry. None of you, and neither am I, strong enough to keep angry, bitter, resentful, unforgiving emotions from spilling out on the people close to us. Whether it's our children, or our spouses, or our friends, or our parents. You can't do it. It's like trying to hold three beach balls under the water at the same time. It's going to come up. Well, um, his friends tie Samson up. They're, 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 they've had it. And they give him to the Philistines. And they, but Samson says, promise me that you won't kill me. And so they promise Samson not to kill him themselves in verses 12 and 13. And then they approach Lehi and the Philistines come at him and the spirit of the Lord comes on him in power and he breaks the ropes that his Israelite brothers tied him with and he decisif decisively wins the battle of Jawbone Hill. Okay, you ever heard of the battle of Jawbone Hill? Okay, that's in verses 15 and 16. Okay, Samuel gets a fresh jawbone of a donkey and kills a thousand Philistines. Look at verse 15 and 16. Finding a fresh jawbone of a donkey, he grabbed it and struck down a thousand men. That's a lot of guys. And Samson said, with a donkey's jawbone, I have made donkeys of them. That's a very antiseptic way of putting it, okay? With a donkey's jawbone, I have killed a thousand men. Wow. And so after that, Samson says, I'm tired and thirsty. Yeah, that would get you thirsty and tired, I guess. In verses 17 and 18, he says, God, can you give me some water? God gets him some water and he quenches his thirst. But think about the damage done because of an unforgiving spirit. It just, it just promoted chaos. What does it say in Romans? Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. And so when you've been hurt, leave, your, leave it to God to deal with that person. Okay? And what you need to do is forgive. And you don't need to even go to that person. You need to go before the Lord and say, Lord, this is how I'm feeling. I'm so angry. I forgive John Doe, Jane Doe, for this, for what they did to me. And you're not forgiving them for John and Day, J Jane Doe's sake, you're forgiving them for your sake. You're not letting them off the hook. You're letting yourselves off the hook, emotionally. And you forgive by name, by feeling, by offense specifically, and then God starts to clear the deck of that anger, and it's a wonderful thing. It's a wonderful thing. I could tell you stories of people I had to forgive who hurt me unjustly, and now I don't even have really any bitterness towards them. Whereas at one time, I wanted to um, um, share my opinions with them. I'll put it that way. Okay. Um, so now we come to a little slice of the pie of why Samson was inducted into Faith's Hall of Fame. Just a little slice. And we see that here um, at the end of this chapter uh, 15 in verse 20. Samson was included in God's hall of faith for more than one reason. Part of one reason would be that he became a strong leader in Israel for 20 years. 20 years. Look at verse 20 of 15. Samson led Israel for 20 years in the days of the Philistines. And so somehow Samson took a breath from his drifting of his spiritual roots and from his revengeful spirit, and he had 20 strong years of leadership in a very, very dark period of Israel's history. Chap fact, up in chapter 17, verse 6, it says, uh, everybody did what was right in his own eyes. 
It was a really chaotic, immoral uh, um, time in Israel. Samson did a good job. He stood apart from others. But then something happens. And it's what he's known for the most. Perhaps you aren't familiar with these first two, but he's known for this the most. And this is how he wasted almost all of his last years, okay? Um, he separates himself from his spiritual roots. He lets revenge rule his life. And then Samson surrenders himself to sexual sin. Samson surrenders himself to sexual sin in chapter 16. Now, he's been successful for quite a stretch, okay? Sounds like he was, uh, you know, uh, just doing everything that God wanted him to do. But one day, it says in verse one, one day, and I have to believe there was a lot of prep time for this, not just bing one day, but he had a lot of prep time. Samson went to Gaza where he saw a prostitute. And I don't know why. It didn't just happen, you know, but he visited a prostitute. And I, I want to tell you, 20 years, and I'll just say it, put it this way, Satan will take all the time he needs to get us to fall in all of these areas, but specifically this one. Satan, Satan will just go inch by inch until he, until he gets uh, a toehold, a foothold, and then a stronghold in this area of sexual sin. I don't know, I don't know. I don't know what was going on in Samson's life, but obviously it just didn't happen that he did this. Maybe he's like David wandering on the rooftop and Bathsheba was down below. Maybe things were going slow and he, he didn't, he wasn't doing what he, sh what he should have been doing. But 20 years, 20 years down the drain. See, the Philistines hear about it and Samson's credibility as a leader crashes, leaving him in Israel vulnerable, and the Philistines surround the, the, the prostitute's house with um, Samson in there. But in the middle of the night, somehow Samson gets word that he's just about ready to get killed by the Philistines, and he leaves. And he goes to the city gate, we're told here, in verse 3, and if you ever had any doubt about how strong Samson was, he tears up the city gate with its posts, and come on, this is not a plywood door, you know. This isn't like our doors here. Right here, these doors that we see here. These, this is the city gate. And you know it wasn't just this little door. It's, this is the city gate, and he pulls it up by the posts, and he carries it over to a, to a hill that faces Hebron. I mean, he's physically strong. He's morally weak but he's physically strong, morally weak, and he carries his gate over. And then we see here that Samson falls in love. I would say he falls in lust, but it says here in, uh, in, in chapter 16 that he falls in uh, love with Delilah, with an evil, sinful woman. Um, somebody said he was a he-man with a she-problem. That's probably what it was. And, you know, I, I just want to say this, because I, I don't, I don't want to get too specific here, but, you know, Delilah, Delilah is a representation of all kinds of sexual sin. Um, it could be any kind of sexual impurity or immorality that can cause us to waste our faith. You know, sexual sin is, 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 is mentioned in the Bible in a special category. And I'm not going to go there and read it, because... Time is really flying by. And, but in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, it says all other sins are outside the body, but sexual sin has to do with our own body. It's interesting. You just read it. 1 Corinthians six thirteen and following. And so I think Delilah can uh, represent a person, but I also think it could, she could represent a pattern of sinful thoughts, lustful thoughts. Or something that we read that's filled with uh, sexual uh, behavior outside the bonds of marriage. Or um, TV that, you know, doesn't honor the Lord. He, he, that you, you hear the Holy Spirit saying, you know, this isn't really right for, for you or I to watch, but you know what, I just, I'm gonna. Or how about uh, pornography? Um, so rife, 
so accessible in our society today. I was thinking yesterday, I'm so glad that I was not a kid being raised today. I can't even imagine how hard it must be and how accessible that is to children and adults alike. But Delilah, however you want to parcel her out, is a real, vengeful, calculating, gold-digging seductress who is a grifter and is offered tens of thousands of dollars by her Philistine uh, family and relatives and people to get Samson to tell of, of the source of his great strength so they can subdue him and kill him or imprison him. And so Delilah tries three times to get Samson to tell her the source of his great strength. Each time Samson lies about how she could tie him up and take his strength away. Finally, she nags him so much and wears him out and Samson tells her the truth. My strength comes from the Nazarite vow not to cut my hair. Without my hair, I'm as weak as any other man. He says that in verse 17 of chapter 16. If my head were shaved, my strength would leave me and I would become as weak as any other man. And once Delilah finds out the truth, she sends for her Philistines, and while Samson is lulled to sleep in her lap, she shaves his head, a symbol of his Nazarite vow, and then he wakes up and he's without his former strength. And that's, that is definitely a picture of what uh, lust can do. Lust, whatever form it takes, sexual impropriety, immorality, impurity, however it, what, it drains people of their strength. It clouds their mind. And it causes a waste of time spiritually because you can't be filled with that stuff and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And so we waste valuable minutes, hours, days, weeks, months, or even years involved in that kind of thing and it makes us weak. It's a picture of weakness and the inability to live for God and how we're captured by it as he was captured by the Philistines. And so he is captured by the Philistines, and the tragic verse in this whole story as we kind of move towards the end of it is he's unaware that the Lord's strength has left him. And we read that in verse 20. Then she called up, Samson, the Philistines are upon you, and he woke from his sleep and thought, I'll go out as before and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. And imagine the bottom just must have fell, fallen out of his a stomach when he, he, he said, I'm going to grease these Philistines. With, I mean, where's that jawbone? And all of a sudden, two of them grab him, and he can't, he can't overcome two when he killed a 1,000 before. And then they seize him and they gouge his eyes out and they put Samson in shackles and they set him to grinding in the prison. And we have a tragic waste of faith that started because of his sexual sin and lust. Now, this is where we find out why Samson was still inducted in Faith's Hall of Fame. And I hope you are encouraged by what we're about to go into now. That no matter how bad we bottom out, no matter how we stray from our spiritual uh, roots, or maybe we've uh, harbored uh, unforgiveness or unresolved anger or bitterness, or perhaps you've gotten caught up in the web of some type of sexual sin. Maybe it's visually or in your thoughts or, or whatever, that it's never too late to turn back to the Lord and be used by God. Amen? It's never too late. I mean, Samson slipped, but he never quit. He came back into full fellowship and obedience to God. And it started when his hair began to grow back. Apparently, the Philistines didn't think ahead enough to give him regular haircuts. You know, you would think they would have... Oh, anyway. But more importantly, he returned to God's will in his life. And, you know, there's something about being chained up that helps you think. Right? They poked his eyes out so he couldn't see anybody anymore, right? He, they chained him up. They made fun of him. And he is really, he's really broken. And, you know, there's a blessing to brokenness, isn't there? The blessing to brokenness is we start thinking about God's will, not our own. Many of you could testify that your period of brokenness in life was, was, was uh, just before the period of blessedness. Because God doesn't really fully bless unbroken people because they can't handle it. They just, I couldn't. 
God's had to break me to give me whatever blessings I, I have, so I give all the credit to him, or try to. And the same with Samson. And so he had to think. And so while the Philistines were offering sacrifices to their false god, Dagon, and reveling in the capture of Samson, they brought Samson out of the prison to perform for them. And Samson says to the, spirit, the, the servant, he put me between the pillars that supported the temple, which is now filled with 3,000 Philistines. And Samson cried to God from the midst of his failure, showing that he had fully returned to the Lord by praying the prayer in verse 28. Now look at verse 28. Samson prayed to the Lord. Number one, O sovereign Lord. Now Samson's giving control to God. And then he says, O God, please strengthen me. Or he says, oh, 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 sovereign Lord, remember me. And so he's showing humility. He's saying, you're in control now, God. I humble myself before you. Please strengthen me just once more. I'm dependent on you. Just let me just once more get revenge on the Philistine for my two eyes. He's putting revenge into the hands of God, not into his own hands. And brothers and sisters, that's the prayer. If we're straying spiritually, if we're drifting away, we're not in the word of God anymore. We're not as consistent in fellowship anymore. We're, our prayer life has sunk to new depths. Or, or whatever, spiritually, we've been drifted, we've rebelled, uh, we've turned away, or, or, or we're just filled with bitterness, or, or, or that, that area of sexual impurity is starting to get a toehold, maybe even a foothold, a stronghold. We go to chapter, or verse 28, and we say, oh, Lord, I give you control. Oh, I humble myself before you. Oh, Lord, I'm dependent on you. Oh, Lord, I put things in your hands and watch things change. And as Samson pushed the pillars, the building collapsed, and all of the Philistines died, and Samson with them. And then he was buried in his father's tomb after leading Israel 20 years. Let me, let's look at three, three or four things that we can learn from this, this passage today. First, we learn there are ways to waste our valuable life of faith. And if we're not careful, we can be deceived by the devil, by our flesh, to waste them. Separating ourselves from our spiritual roots, running away or drifting away, continuing to harbor an attitude of unforgiveness and revenge, surrendering ourselves continually to some type of sexual sin, whether it's a person or thoughts or on the tube or reading material or even pornography or some other way. Or it could be anything that God is speaking to you about that is causing you to waste your life of faith? Could it be materialism or sloth or laziness or a lack of giving your time, talent, and treasures or your pride or you're your a gossip or you're full of envy or you're a divisive person? Uh, whatever the case may be, we've learned we gotta be careful about wasting periods of our life away. And then what we can learn too that in spite of our failures and maybe drifting far away from God or even a short distance away, we can still be used by God in significant ways because not only can he restore, not only will he restore, but God wants to restore. God wanted to restore Samson. We don't have to wait till the end of our lives like Samson did. You can do it right now. Just go home, get verse 28 out of chapter 16, and with all your heart and soul and mind and strength, pray that prayer to the Lord, and he'll restore you of these time uh, faith wasters. He wants to do that. Okay, you'll experience the restoration that Samson had and on a lot earlier than he, he, he did. And then I would say this is one other thing. You know, godly parents don't always produce godly children. Do you notice that? How godly Manoah was and his wife? Godly, godly people. But godly parents don't always produce godly children. Bless those of you that have. You are abundantly blessed. But it doesn't always happen that way. But they can return. They can return. And I'm not so sure that before Samson died that somehow he got word to his parents and said, Mom, Dad, I'm sorry. You were right. 
He goes, don't give up on your kids. You know, don't, don't, don't give up on your children. Samson is proof of that. He fell off the grid. Okay, but he came back. His par- parents never stopped praying for him, did they? No. And he came back stronger than ever. And so give it time and trust the Lord and see what happens. And then last thing I want to say is, if you're a person that's never repented of your sin, turned to Christ for the forgiveness of your sin, received his forgiveness purchased for you on the cross through his death, burial, and resurrection. If you've never done that, think about the waste that you're committing in this earth, your time on earth, the waste of not having Christ living within you and living the fullest life possible, which is the Christian life, and then the waste for all eternity in separation from God. What a waste of a soul, an eternal soul, separated from God in a place that that you don't want to be. So I would encourage you, don't waste your life. If you're lost, if you're not a Christian, turn your life over to Christ and have full life now and for all eternity. Father God, we just come to you learning from Samson. And Lord, I find myself guilty of everything he's done and uh, to some degree and other things that have wasted time, valuable time, that we'll never get back. We'll never get back the time we wasted. Thank you for this prayer in verse 28. It can help our hearts return to you. I pray for any brother or sister here this morning that's found that they've drifted from their spiritual roots or maybe they've been harboring unresolved bitterness or revenge or perhaps they've caught in the web of sexual sin or, um, or any of the others I've read or any of others that I haven't read. May they have a spirit of repentance this morning so they don't waste any more time. And then, Lord, for that person that may not be saved, help them to not waste any more time but turn to Jesus uh, now and forever. And we ask it in your name, amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful uh, week.